Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Democratic Republic of North Korea is a country where human rights are severely limited. Press is censored, beliefs of all kind are persecuted, and the world is taking notice. In 2014, the UN Commission of Inquiry into Human Rights in North Korea published a report detailing human rights abuses committed by the country's leadership against its own people. They compared the scale of the abuse to the atrocities committed by the Nazis. Here to discuss the response to the UN inquiry is Dr. Danielle Chubb, a lecturer in international relations at Deakin University. Thanks for joining me, Danielle. Thanks for having me, Matt. So can you give me a bit of a perspective on the human rights issues in North Korea? And is the comparison to the Nazi regime an accurate or fair one? To answer the the second part of the question first, I think what you're referring to there is in 2014 when the re- report was released, um, Michael Kirby, who was it the was chair of the Commission of Inquiry, Michael Kirby, yes, yeah. he, he made this comparison in the launch of the report. Mm. And from my perspective, uh, without putting words in his mouth, the reason this is done, this comparison is made, is because this inquiry is tasked with bringing the attention of the world community to the human rights situation in North Korea. And this is a powerful way of reminding the international community that after the Holocaust, that after the atrocities that occurred under Nazi Germany and its allies during World War II, the world said never again will we allow this to happen under our noses. Mm. Never again will we knowingly allow people to perish in concentration camps and have their rights grossly violated. So I think that that's the reason this comparison is made. I think other direct comparisons can be made, but they're not necessarily very helpful. But that, I think, is a very powerful analogy. As for my perspective on human rights in North Korea, the Commission of Inquiry, I think, was very comprehensive. And so it's probably worth, at the top of this, going over like what we're talking about. Firstly, the inquiry found that there were systematic, widespread and gross human rights violations taking place inside North Korea, and that some of these violations they found did constitute crimes against humanity. Mm. Uh, and I won't go into this in great detail, and it's, it's all out there for people to look up if they're interested. The methodology of the commission was very rigorous and very interesting, I think. So they took this very seriously. And while North Korea refused after many efforts to engage with North Korea to take part in the inquiry, they decided this wasn't going to stop them. And that after decades of human rights activism, of so-called defector activism, that there was enough data out there, enough proof out there, enough evidence out there Mm. to make this a legally compelling case. And hours and hours and hours of private and public testimony from former North Koreans as well as activists and analysts was recorded and taken into consideration Mm. in the compilation of this report. The violations range from freedom of thought, expression, religion, where a huge propaganda system in North Korea requires absolute obedience to a supreme leader where the social activities of the North Koreans are um, dictated by the Workers' Party of Korea, there's no independent media, it's all state-controlled, that there's a system of widespread discrimination, that basically North Koreans are categorised according to Songbun, this social classification from birth, whereby this dictates where they're able to live, what kind of education they can have, the kinds of jobs and accommodations and opportunities that they're able to have during their lives, that this also affected their livelihoods, especially during the famine, where a shortage of food meant that those who were the least favoured by the government under this system Mm. were restricted from accessing food and there's no freedom of movement. People can't go where they want. They can't leave the country. And the final two findings, and I think these are the most widely known, was that there is a system of concentration camps where arbitrary detention, executions and disappearances occur. These quantly so, which the North Korean regime denies their existence, even though we have clear satellite 
imagery that, that tells us that they exist. And also the Commission of Inquiry looked into the question of abductions that a, a wide range of peoples from the Korean War, but also just individuals from Japan and South Korea particularly, were abducted at various stages by the North Korean government. So that's a very quick snapshot, but yeah, this is a really comprehensive report and it's, you know, it's a dire situation in North Korea. So the UN Commission report delivered in 2014 has some, some fairly damning evidence, but there seems to be very little progress in the meantime, at least diplomatically. So what's your assessment of that process? The Commission inquiry's recommendations, I've already talked a little bit mm. about the findings, the recommendations were also quite widespread and comprehensive. The flagship and most noticed, and also I think the most promoted by the Commission chairs was this idea of accountability, that North Korean leaders need to understand that their actions are being noticed by the international community and that they will be held accountable. And most particularly, the report recommends referral by the UN Security Council to the International uh, Criminal Court or the setup of an arbitrary process. Neither of these are likely to happen, but these are still what the international community is working towards. So while there hasn't been a lot of progress diplomatically on that front, there have been other developments in the UN process area, not to overstate it, but there have been slowly things happening, most notably the setting up of a so-called field office, which was mandated or required by the report that is meant to continue this focus on accountability and data collection. That's been set up in Seoul. It's an extension of the Office for the High Commission of Human Rights from mm. the United Nations, and its mandate is to strengthen monitoring, documentation, to engage with civil society groups and other stakeholders, and to maintain visibility of the human rights situation. So this is an effort to make sure that we don't lose momentum, I guess, on these fronts. And, and I think that while we haven't seen referral to the International Criminal Court for a whole range of, of issues that are well beyond the remit of this particular commission, we have seen a lot of developments domestically in the United States and South Korea that's all been enabled by this high level of attention that's been given to mm. the uh, human rights situation in North Korea. But it does rely a lot on, you know, if there's going to be any significant progress, cooperation from North Korea which doesn't really seem like it's going to be forthcoming at all. It also, I think, more importantly, requires cooperation from China and Russia. Yeah, sure. From the Security Council perspective. So, no, I mean, North Korea is not a signatory. They have to be referred through the Security Council. Mm. And China and Russia aren't likely to support any referral. In fact, they're extremely unlikely. And we know their position on, on human rights in the United Nations. So the international effort to stop North Korea's nuclear tests, they've been unsuccessful. So what are your thoughts on this? And do you think it's taking an international priority over the human rights violations? Of course. The international community's focus on North Korea has been and will continue to be on the nuclear and ballistic missile but program. Fa- but fairly so, because I feel like the human rights violations are being used as a tool to bring sanctions against North Korea that are more so aimed at trying to keep their nuclear capabilities in check. Yes, I think what we've seen happen, I mean, really over the past year or two, and I think since the release of this report, is an increasing tendency, and this is unprecedented when it comes to North Korea, an increasing tendency to link human rights and nuclear weapons concerns. And I think this comes to the question of sanctions. We have two perspectives. First of all, we have the perspective that sanctions on North Korea for human rights violations or for nuclear weapons won't work 
and that time has shown that we've had sanctions on North Korea since the 1990s. Mm. They haven't worked and they won't work. That's one school of thought. The other end of the spectrum, we have people, and a lot of these work within the human rights community in the United States, say, well, the sanctions that have been recently bilaterally imposed on North Korea by the United States under the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act of 2016 under the Obama administration, these are unprecedented in their level of restriction of the level that they impose upon North Korean individuals, financial sanctions, and that they haven't had a chance to work. And in fact, while the camp who doesn't believe sanctions will work say that they've been tried for a long time and they won't work, we need to get back to the negotiating table. People on the other side of the spectrum say, we've been trying to talk to North Korea for decades Mm. and that hasn't worked, so we need to try this. So these two schools of thought, they have trouble talking to each other. In the middle, I think, you have people who are really trying to make progress. They are concerned that linking human rights with nuclear weapons is problematic because it's going to stymie progress on the nuclear weapons front, which many see, especially those within the State Department, see as a necessary priority, that this is an existential threat, particularly to South Korea, but also to the United States. But you also have others who say, well, nothing we've been doing on on the nuclear weapons front has worked. Maybe it's time to try this. I mean, after all, we can't close our eyes anymore to the human rights violations in North Korea. And maybe, and just maybe, and you do hear people saying this, maybe North Korean officials, you know, lower level or mid-level are going to see that one day they might be held accountable for their actions and they might be afraid that the status quo on the Korean Peninsula won't hold. And so they may modify their actions in this way, I think this is a long shot. It does uh, sound very pie-in-the-sky yeah. kind of thinking. But this is where we're at at the moment. Yeah. So I find it very interesting that we're linking all of a sudden human rights and nuclear weapons development. So actually, to go back a step, I think when we look at sanctions, I think sanctions have two purposes. The sanctions that we've had for a long time imposed by the United Nations on North Korea to stop nuclear weapons has been all aimed at bringing North Korea back to the negotiating table, back to the six-party talks, back to an agreement where they stop development, stop their nuclear and ballistic missiles program and work towards disarmament. Whereas, in my perspective, the human rights sanctions, and without making a statement on whether or not they're going to be effective, they very much come from the perspective whereby the only way we're going to change the human rights situation in North Korea is to put so much pressure on the regime that it's no longer sustainable. Mm. And the corollary of this is that these are people who are pushing for regime change. And for a long time, they weren't saying this specifically, but you're seeing this kind of regime change rhetoric come back in. And I don't think that you can see this any other way. I mean, sanctions on the North Korean regime for human rights violations are not aimed at bringing North Korea back to a negotiating table. Pressuring a country to change their human rights in this way has no precedent for being successful. And so linking these two, I think, is potentially a dangerous precedent. Mm. But it's also the way that some very thoughtful people have been looking at this issue. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where we go forward with this. So while the international community plans its steps forward, the activist community is a very active element of all of this. And you've been studying this directly. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me about that? How extensive is it? I think all my perspectives on this that I've already been covering kind of come from my study of of the activist community. And when people think about North Korean human rights activism, and I think this applies to many people who've been working in North Korean human rights space as well as interested outsiders, all they see is this very vocal group of advocates, mostly based in Washington, D.C., but also in Seoul, and they're made up of 
usually quite conservative players mm. who are often backed by the Christian right because there is a huge issue in North Korea when it comes to freedom of religion. This is of great concerns to many evangelical communities in the United States. And this is important because this is a core constituency for a lot of the lobby groups in Washington, D.C. and gives them a lot of legitimacy. And these groups work often closely with so-called defector communities who are trying to bring about change in this way, which also gives them a lot of legitimacy because they can claim to have North Korean voices and they're very loud, they lobby Congress, they help bring about these sanctions acts and all these kinds of things. But you also have a whole other type of activist who are mostly based in Europe, who work very closely with the UN processes, who were in fact the ones who brought about the UN Commission of Inquiry. Mm. It's interesting to note that those people based in DC, well, they definitely draw a lot of currency from the UN Commission of Inquiry report to give their campaign legitimacy and their goals legitimacy. They were opposed to it because they ultimately don't believe that diplomatic processes are going to change anything in North Korea. Mm. But you do have very committed activists who come from an Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch type of tradition, which is very much based on a legalistic discourse of North Korean human rights, which are concerned with using the mechanisms we have within the United Nations and who were working with Navapillai, who was the High Commissioner for Human Rights, who called for the report, who made sure that she met camp survivors, who made sure that she was exposed to the, the huge amount of human rights activism that was taking place, who were looking for different ways of approaching the North Korean human rights situation. And these activists that have very different perspectives on how to bring about change. So you have two different camps, and I think that both of them have been very effective. Both of them have made, brought about great change. And the way policymakers think and talk about North Korea, I would argue, is very much thanks to decades of human rights activism. When I started studying this back in the early 2000s, it was very much a niche issue and, and no one was paying attention to it. Mm. And that's completely changed. So I think that uh, it's a very extensive community, to answer your question directly. It's not a cohesive one. It's in some ways divided. But also, I think rather than saying it's a divided community, you could say it's a very diverse community. So we've just had a, uh, a election in the United States, and all indications are that President Trump will handle the situation in North Korea maybe differently, maybe creatively. While it's hard to know exactly how this is going to play out, do you have any predictions about what may happen Honestly, I think that the only responsible thing to say to that question is, I have no idea. Yes. <laughs> because if you look at what Donald Trump has said, the very little he said about North Korea, and he has said very little about North Korea. He suggested off the cuff one time that he might sit down and have a hamburger with Kim Jong-un if Kim Jong-un came to Washington, D.C. But he also suggested that, well, maybe we should assassinate the guy. So I don't know. But, you know... Uh, China should assassinate the guy. Okay, yes. Yeah. This is China's yeah. responsibility mm. that mm. he should be assassinated. Mm. I mean, President Obama, in his presidential campaign, you have to remember, spoke very strongly about negotiating and engaging with North Korea in a very different tone and for very different reasons to Trump. And for a whole range of reasons, which we don't have time to get into, this didn't materialize. And I don't think anyone would have predicted back in 2008, 2009, that an Obama administration would place sanctions on North Korea due to its human rights violations. Mm, I mean, mm. this is a complete turnaround in policy. So what President Trump will do is hard to predict. He doesn't have, though a great track record for criticising authoritarian leaders for their human rights abuses. Let's just say that. All right, that's all the time we've got for the podcast today. Thanks for your time, Danielle. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you'd like to follow Danielle Chubb on Twitter, she's at Danielle underscore CHB. If you want to follow myself, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Nightlight Guy. 
If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review there because reviews make us feel appreciated and wanted. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.